Welcome to the Paru Zings, Appraisers on Purpose podcast. This podcast showcases inspiring appraisers and professionals from the industry who are leaders in their field. How did they get to where they are? What have they learned along the way? And what do they do now for their teams, their clients, and the industry? Your host is real estate investor, entrepreneur, and appraiser, Michael Hobbs. Well, welcome back. We are excited once again to have another conversation with an industry peer. Uh, once again, a fascinating individual with an impressive experience across a range of valuation, not only assets, but segments of the industry, which we always find uh, valuable, insightful, and hopefully enjoyable along the way. Because it's not every day that we get the opportunity to, to hear from a peer who has this type of experience. And, and today is no different. I am excited that Megan is joining us. Megan is up to some phenomenal things. But before we even get to that, I just want to say, Megan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Michael. Hey, I appreciate it. It's great to come right off a holiday weekend, beautiful day outside and be able to spend some time here. We only I only wish we had a, a nice little uh, like Italian coffee sitting outside with the lovely sunshine and small table at like a cafe. But instead, you know, we're here doing a podcast. That's all right. We'll make it work. And we're loving that spring has sprung here in Chicago. So here we go. We are grateful that uh, spring has sprung. I was catching up. A friend of my wife's uh, family was in town over the weekend, and they were talking about how nice it was to come to cooler weather since they live down in Florida. I was like, well, we're, we're grateful that it's it's getting to a more enjoyable temperature. That's why we endure those winters here in Chicago, so we can have the rest of it. So with that, Megan, we'd love to always ask that opening question. Were you born this way, or how did you end up in the uh, valuation and appraisal profession? No, I was I was not born this way. I, oh, wow. I, I didn't even graduate uh, high school or college understanding what commercial real estate was. Oh, you neither? Oh, my gosh. Thank goodness. I thought it was just me. Oh, my gosh. So you had no clue. Oh, my goodness. Tell us about it. So what happened? High school, college? That's right. So I went to college. I just was looking, you know, actually French was my passion. I wanted to learn oh. how to speak French. So. Wow. <laughs> Love it. I went to school called Truman State University. It's in Kirksville, Missouri. And what okay. brought me there was swimming. So I, I swam, went through that program. It was an excellent experience. But ultimately, that is how I ended up at Truman State University. I grew up in eastern Iowa. I wanted to go out of state. So I went a whole hour south of the Iowa border in Missouri. <laughs> really ventured far. It was a three-hour drive to my hometown, but it was a fantastic undergrad experience. Uh, but I learned pretty quickly that I wasn't interested in French literature, and that's what you learn about primarily when you're a French major. So okay. I kind of took another look at what my goals were by the first, you know, end of the first semester. I decided to switch to a business major and a minor in French, uh, which served me well. I was able to study abroad and spent some great time in Nice, France, uh, for a semester and. Swimming kept me busy along with a lot of other organizations. But at the end of the day, when I graduated college, uh, didn't all, the only thing I really knew was that I grew up in a very small town. I grew up in a town of 3,000 people in eastern Iowa. So I knew. 3,000 people, Megan. So that means you had, you had more than just a stop and go light. We had the only stoplight in Cedar County, Iowa. <laughs> so quite a small uh, you know, town and school a very rural upbringing, which I love, I cherish. I still go back and enjoy my time there. My parents are born and raised there as well. But I knew from about second grade on when I learned that the city of Chicago had a greater population than the entire state of Iowa, 
that I wanted to get to our 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 neighboring uh, large city only a few hours uh, uh, east of us. So I moved to Chicago right after college and a family friend had forwarded on an open, uh, like just entry level research analyst position at a large global commercial real estate services firm. Yeah. So I applied and this individual was only willing to hand me the opportunity to interview, not to give, put in a good word, but I, I did a good job. I, I, I interviewed well and got the position and, I stayed at that. So, Megan, Megan, if I may, I want to interject. So, here you are. You come out of a of a small town, three thousand people. You're excited because you have the one stoplight in the whole. I think you said county. So, I mean, that, that's quite an accomplishment. I mean, I'm sure they attribute that to you and the family, of course. But that's right. So, you're a competitive swimmer, and you go to Truman. Is that what division? Is that two. division two? Division two? Uh, okay. How'd you do? I mean, so were you like good friends with Michael Phelps? Like, I mean, I, I don't follow swimming much, but. So, no, I, uh, no, I don't, I don't know Michael Phelps. I, I, have I mean, a, he doesn't know you. Maybe yeah, he doesn't yeah, know you, so I, I way to say it. I do have a, a, a few friends that have uh, gone to the Olympic trials and tried. Mm-hmm. No one's made it. There were a couple of people with dual citizenship and their siblings uh, were able to, to swim on, on their teams, not for the U.S. It's highly competitive, obviously. So D2, but we had a lot of great success, actually. My sophomore year, we won the NCAA Division II championships. I'm an All-American on a relay, and it was excellent experience. We had a lot of great success. I made a lot of lifelong friends. And my sister, actually, who's two years younger than me, ended up coming and swimming there as well. So it was it became a family affair. But ultimately, that really taught me you know, how to balance or to create, to, to really leverage the work ethic that my parents instilled at me, in me coming from a small town and uh, balance work and, and the how demanding NCAA T2 training is for swimming, right? And all of that set me up well. Yeah, you're, I mean, at that point, a lot of people probably have not had the experience to be a collegiate athlete, much less to compete at the level that you competed at. And maybe, you know, if they went to college, university, they maybe knew someone who was on a team, but they don't have any perspective of how much responsibilities and how many concurrent things must be managed as both a student and an athlete. That's right. And all through high school, because I did go, you know, graduate from a, a small school, we, I played four sports. So athletics has always been a big Did, did you say life. four sports? You didn't say Bo Jackson, two sports. I heard you say four sports. That's, a, That's what right. were the four sports? Yeah. So I swam in the fall. I played basketball in the winter and I was a hurdler on the track team in the spring and I played softball in the summer. So I was a catcher. Wow. Softball was my favorite sport followed closely by basketball, then maybe swimming. So <laughs> just happened to have better success at swimming. But all that taught me teamwork Amazing. and collaborative efforts and leadership skills that I utilize to this day. That is such a wonderful perspective on doing something that you enjoyed or maybe almost enjoyed as much as others and sticking with it uh, and then being getting to be part of something that would never say, say be on your own. I mean, you just go to the pool and swim. It's not the same as being part of that team and learning that collaboration that comes from, it sounds like you were a four-year athlete as well. Three, actually. I did not make it my uh, fourth year because I really wanted to study abroad uh, in that experience. So I I did not swim my fourth year. I swam three years. uh, but And that study abroad experience was really valued. It opened up my eyes to, you know, how different people live and navigating a new, you know, geography on my own and, and language. It was, it was an excellent experience. That is, and that was a whole year or is that just half a year? That was just one semester. 
And so I did not pursue that. I'd love to hear, uh, maybe for people that don't aren't familiar with this, but depending on where they uh, did attend university, or maybe they have family that might be attending that, many times an opportunity to study abroad can exist. And specifically, yours was in another country. Speaking their primary language was not English. Did your world exist in French or was part of your education in English and in French? How was that for you? That's right. It was both. I studied in Nice, France at a school called EPOG. It was a business school, an international business school. So all of my finance classes and kind of behavioral science type stuff, that was all in English. But then I took advanced French. Fantastic. Well, I apologize that I only took a couple years of French in high school. Hardly remember anything. Won't even try to now. Otherwise, we could have totally done this in French. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would have failed. So glad we're not doing that. Absolutely glad we're not doing that. So one of the pathways to Chicago wasn't being a French literature professor. Instead, you you get this introduction, like I said, not even so much an endorsement, but an introduction to evaluation firm. Did that keep you in uh, Missouri or Iowa or did that take you to Chicago? That was here in Chicago. So I moved to Chicago. I applied uh, for the entry-level research analyst position at the commercial real estate services firm and it was fantastic. It had nothing to do with valuation. I didn't even, I still at this point now barely know what commercial real estate is, but I'm researching it every day and building up wow. a database on availabilities throughout the Chicago metro area when it comes to office space. So my first job was running around the city of Chicago, taking photos of all the towers and then uh, oh, jumping wow. in my car and taking photos of all the suburban office buildings and populating the database. And that was a, that was really my first uh, entrance into a web-based application and how powerful data aggregation uh, could be. But again, it was entirely in the research pool that was servicing the tenant rep and office agency brokers. So it wasn't still not on the valuation side. But nonetheless, you're getting this exposure. I mean, if, if maybe I, I'm trying to get a picture in my mind. So I, I've seen the car when when Google was really building out their visual database, it had all those cameras on top. Instead, it was Megan in the car with like some kind of camera in her hand. Is that kind of the visual that I'm yeah, getting? Correct. This is back. I did have a digital camera. So it's not a like digital I camera. To, yeah, I, I didn't have to develop any film. This was a, <laughs> right at the beginning of the digital camera wave. And you come back and plug in your computer, you know, plug in the, the little card to your computer and download wow. the the images and upload them to the database. And- oh, goodness. Yeah. So you get exposed and that's, we're talking approximately two decades ago. So you're getting exposed to this concept of databases and large availability of information. And you're actually helping contribute to the real-time nature of accuracy. That's right. And we also, and leveraging a call center actually at the time as well, we were managing a call center offshore that was calling on all of the economic specifics of any of the space that might be available to populate the database so that the tenant rep brokers or oh, uh, the agency, you know, brokers could take a look at the information and leverage it to, uh, you know, generate leads for clients to service. So it was fun to kind of see how it all came together. And uh, it was all about the office market at that point. I get it. So in this case, in addition to taking the photos, you had team members who were actually making phone calls to be it property managers or other brokers in the marketplace. And that was really kind of supporting the work you were doing. That's right. And then we leveraged uh, the individual, like as you call on individual office towers to figure out what their availability is, you then can deduce what their occupancy is on a quarterly basis. So from our database, we would grab the statistics and create our own proprietary 
commentary on submarket and market fundamentals when it came to uh, supply and demand of, of office space in the Chicago metro area. Wow. So in this case, talking about, you know, basically first person activity as a result of reaching out, surveying the market and understanding what the vacancies are, you can back into occupancy and then you get a sense of what's the health of the market, what are the trends and, and what activity is going on. That's right. And and it was all in the service of, of the you know brokers that we supported with that data and the clients that they uh, interacted with, which was really a great base for what ultimately became a valuation career because you know, you really learn to be very resourceful as a researcher and, uh, you know, communicate and, and uh, get what you need from someone quickly to move on to the next one because you're dealing with high volume type uh, uh, scenarios. So it was an excellent base for what ultimately became a, a long career in valuation. That's fascinating because a lot of people maybe that don't come up through a similar path that you've had may not be anywhere near as familiar with the duration of your outreach and your market analysis. And then you talk about resourcefulness, which is always an important characteristic in this profession. What, do you have any particular recollection of, a, of an experience you had that, that really pushed you to be extra resourceful back in those days to get the information uh, in an efficient manner and get on to the next opportunity? Yeah, I think I found, I, I kind of learned from maybe other people's mistake around me quite a bit. There would be a request that came in maybe from a broker on understanding new construction pipeline in the city of Chicago and how they wanted to graphically lay it out. And, and some of my counterparts would say, oh, we don't have anything like that. And it was the first time where I just said, well, we don't have anything like that, but there's no reason why I can't leverage this map and come and research the data and then put it together and come up with a piece that would help. And and then we would satisfy your needs. So I think it's the that during that time, I really learned that as a researcher, you can say, let me check or let me explore that. And no, just really wasn't ever part of my vocabulary. That's kind of what I ultimately came down to is if, if someone asked me before I said no, I was going to exhaust all opportunities to see if I could satisfy their need and come up with something that was mutually agreeable. And that that has carried me through the vast majority of my commercial real estate service career. I, I think whether it was valuation career, whether it would be business development, whether, you know, you name it, that willingness to receive the question and, as I think I heard you say, uh, replying not necessarily with a yes or a no, but saying, hey, let me explore that and uh, have a little time to investigate and get back to you, and then offer at least some kind of solution. I mean, what a way to create a satisfying experience, both for yourself for making progress or achieving something that hadn't been done, but also for them that they didn't get an immediate no. Uh, that, that's fantastic. That's right. Yep. That was uh, that had served me well uh, throughout my career. And I would say right after I got married, we ended up moving markets, which had also served me when I was learning a new geography as well. So we moved from Chicago to Washington, D.C. Uh, at the end of 2005. And I spent five years there. And that is where I was introduced to valuation. Oh, wow. So did you move out there with what I interpreted you know, based on some of the things you said was that the work you were doing supported brokers and then you mentioned the change in life status, you know, exciting, you get married, you end up in DC, and then you're moving from working with brokers to working with people in the valuation space? That's right. Yeah. So oh, okay. the opportunity was to transfer and take over for uh, an employee who was on maternity leave for a few months. And so I transitioned to a research anal analyst position in the DC market. And the goal was to become a tenant rep broker. That's kind of what I knew. Oh, it's when okay. I saw I was I liked the dynamic uh, relationship building aspects of that world. 
And when I got into when I got to DC, the contract ended or the need for the uh, filling in on a temporary basis for the the gallops and maternity leave, I ended up taking a, a research uh, kind of junior appraiser training opportunity within the valuation department of this commercial real estate services firm. So oh, okay. still with the same firm, but I'm now in a another service line. Mm-hmm. leveraging the skills and, and research capabilities that I had developed over that couple of year time frame, but now applying it to assisting appraisers and building up a database in terms of sale and rent comps so that, that all that information was aggregated in one place to really speed up the process and allow them to see the whole kind of universe of information available to them to create their opinions of value. Oh, that's fascinating. So here you are again gathering information, but instead of driving it towards the tenant rep side, the brokerage helping out brokers helping out, you know, occupiers of space, be it, you know, businesses, organizations, you name it. Now it's it's sales data, I heard you say, as well as rental data. That's right. Yep. It's all the support that we appraisers use to create that credible opinion of value and and uh support it and, and tell the real story, you know, behind the asset in that market. Ooh, so okay. during that time, it was really fascinating, Michael, because, you know, I could take what I learned in Chicago and what was needed on the, you know, occupancy side, right? Uh, mm-hmm. The space usage side. And then we got to uh, layer on the skill set of understanding, you know, how you use that information to actually create a value for an income producing property. So it was really a, a good progression in understanding like, where all the information comes from and how it's used and how valuable it is when you start to aggregate it. Megan, that is uh, such an interesting perspective that a number of people in the valuation industry actually share with you. And that is they started out in some capacity or another in in brokerage or in on, on a brokerage team or in a research capacity. And then in your case, as well as a number of our peers, they get an opportunity to move over into valuation, as you point out, which is actually doing a good bit more with that data. And it's more focused towards both the support of the internal database. So you have access to a lot of information, but more importantly, to help support specific requests of clients as opposed to you know, a broker who's going out and making sales. What was that experience like in the change of your focus? I mean, research still a lot, sounds like resourcefulness, very high, um, satisfying requests, but uh, the, the people you interacted with were uh, uh, focused on a different activity. Yes, they were. But I never stopped interacting with the brokerage side either because I always found it to be uh, fascinating to understand kind of the big picture of of everything that was going on. So I learned a lot from the senior appraisers about the appraisal profession and what all goes into ultimately putting together a credible opinion of value and leveraging the data that's available to us researching it, which that base was already there, and then how to write about it, how to explain what you, you know, how you decided to select certain comparables and all that that good thing. But I, I always stayed involved in the sales meetings. I, I kept uh, showing up to the investment sales meetings for the office and uh, any kind of, you know, when there's a tenant rep uh, meeting, I stayed in there because I was valuing office and industrial space and I wanted to hear what was happening with the actual boots on the ground. So always stayed connected to what the market was doing because at the end of the day, that's our our job, right? We mimic kind of what market value is and, and you can't do that without understanding, you know, the, the incentives of, of the buyers and sellers and their brokers. So 
always paid attention to that. What a wonderful, as you would say, inside the room opportunity, as opposed to just kind of floating around, or as you said, when you started out being in a car, taking photos, it's very different from sitting in a meeting with you know the investment sales team or a sales meeting, hearing about the office and industrial space use needs, challenges. And yet you're doing that now in a whole new market. Was it very difficult to move from a, a geography like Chicago to DC where, again, real estate's real estate, but a lot of different participants, maybe different motivations? Yeah. At that point in my career, it wasn't too difficult because I hadn't established my name yet in either market and I had the base of research. So I was able to become you know, pretty knowledgeable quickly once I got to DC. Yes. Which helped. And I will say, so I took all of my appraiser trainee. My path to valuation did not stop though there. I actually took all my trainee courses and got my you know trainees license in the mid-Atlantic region. Practice for a little while, but I was out there for five years, Michael, and I only spent the first two years as in valuation. I spent the last three years in investment sales. So I was part of an investment sales team because if you recall, this is now... 2008, and we are yes. rolling into the thick of uh, the GFC, as we came to know <laughs> it later. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I thought, well, there's going to be all this opportunity to dispose of assets because of distress, so I'm going to join the investment sales team, which was an excellent experience, but we did not, if you recall, end up selling all that much because there was a lot of blend and extend and not a lot of institutional yes. assets actually went to distress. We ended up doing a lot of BOVs, uh, talked with a lot of clients, sold a few properties, but it was an invaluable experience because in the appraisal profession, we are often taking a deal that has been looked at for months and months and uh, you know, someone either through acquisition or financing purposes has come to what they believe you know, to be a market-oriented uh, value. And at the end yes. of the day, we're obviously a very important uh, part of the capital markets. We're a risk mitigator and- uh, it was, but it's very much more like rear view looking and back end of, of the transaction. So it was invaluable for me to take everything that I had learned on the research side and then, and on the valuation side, but then apply it to the investment sales side, because that's really more market leading. That's setting the market and understanding kind of how to push it, what's next, right? And so that, that yes. type of, of understanding of buyer and seller motivation ultimately ended up serving me very well in what now has been a, a call it 11, 12 year uh, specific appraisal career and teaching sure. the next generation of appraisers and explaining kind of the big picture of what we do as appraisers and how it fits into the rest of the market. All that background really served me well. Well, and it's great to hear that through this, uh, through the GSC, through the great financial crisis, that you stayed engaged. I mean, not, uh, you know, a lot of people struggled during that time frame. And I hear that uh, you demonstrated a substantial amount of flexibility, both being in the valuation side as well as investment sales. And somewhere along the line, it sounds like you came to a decision point and you moved away from investment sales. That's right. So what happened was we were, I got married in my mid-20s as I met my husband uh, in at Kirks, in at Truman State University. So in college, right? Oh, okay. He was from Chicago. We moved to DC, obviously together just after we got married. And uh, spent five years out there. But around that time, uh, it was, you know, we started thinking about starting a family. And we loved DC and had, a gr had great career opportunities out there. But at the end of the day, both of us grew up around our family. 
and knew we knew that we wanted to you know start a family and raise our kids in the Midwest somewhere where it wasn't as as far to travel to hang out with with the the extended family. So we moved back to Chicago and I explored some other opportunities. But at the end of the day, I knew we were going to start a family and I knew the flexibility that the appraisal space allowed would allow for me in terms of being a young family, being the female, right? The, the mother yes. uh, and had to take care of the kids, uh, especially <laughs> when they were babies. And uh, the, the valuation profession really looked like it was going to afford the most opportunity to, uh, you know, have a good income, create the client base, but also have enough time to to raise small children. And that's exactly what it did. I think that the appraisal profession is fantastic for females and, and anyone with a young family because you can really set your own hours. You know, Megan, that's a ringing endorsement uh, on many different fronts. And I'm really grateful that you touched on that because I think that's one thing that gets missed a lot in people's discussions around being in maybe a particular industry, uh, valuation specifically. And you talk about flexibility. It doesn't mean that you're not working hard. doesn't mean that there might not be long hours. But you also, what I'm hearing you say, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that you uh, had a sense of, of who you and your husband were and what you all wanted and what steps you were willing to take to get it. Uh, and after some thorough research, you identified staying in the profession, if you will, or staying associated with the profession you'd been a part of as a way to really fulfill on what was important to you. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So I stayed with the same firm, moved markets again back to Chicago and joined the valuation advisory group. Oh. And that is where and, and, and I did that because of the flexibility I knew it would afford. Plus the earning potential was was great, right? I I had the background. I knew I could make a go of it with my own business development and uh, you know, knowledge that I had gotten over the years and, you know, I already knew the Chicago market. Although I will say moving back in uh, 2011, Ooh. coming from our nation's capital, we were basically coming out of the recession in 2011. Multifamily had started to take off. There were cranes everywhere. Yes. And when I moved back to Chicago, I basically prolonged my recession for a good year because uh, I was still dealing with declining cash flows in the Midwest. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So you, what I also hear you uh, saying is you now have gotten exposure to another asset group, whereas you'd come out of, I thought you said office and industrial out in DC. Now you're coming back to Chicago, but you're changing over to multifamily. That's right. There was an opportunity uh, to uh, lead the multifamily team, or at least just start working on multifamily because no one had been specializing in it. And this was around the time that specialty practice groups at the larger uh, national firms had started. And being in a big market, you can specialize in uh, yes. uh, in an asset class. So there was an opportunity to take on multifamily. Multifamily is uh, significantly easier uh, to underwrite than the other income producing properties out there. There's not a lot of expense pools you have to figure out or NRA issues. It's fairly uh, straightforward and there's a lot of it. So, and I also, multifamily is a draw for me because it, it's easier to see how it impacts people's lives, right? Like you're, yeah. you're creating, like you're allowed, they're allowing you to come into your space on those inspections and, and you can engage with some of the folks on the, on the inspection and, you know that you know if it's an agency loan or if it's an affordable property, you're you're you know, allowing good quality housing to stay in circulation, and and it's it's yes. really nice to kind of see that it's right. I mean, housing is a basic need, so it's it's a good good business to be in because it's not going anywhere. Yeah, very much so, 
Very much so. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's prevalent out in D.C. It's prevalent here. Uh, but as you pointed out, uh, after getting to extend the GFC for a little bit for you coming back to Chicago, you got to be active in that you know, exciting time, That's which right. was multifamily growth here in uh, specifically Chicago. But it sounds like you were probably part of the Midwest is what I'm gathering. Yes. So when I started focusing on multifamily, it was primarily in the Chicagoland area. I had had my first child at this time and was kind of working from home for the first six months and going out on inspections. So uh, it was I had a setup both in the office and at home and was really making it work, you know, for a good uh, couple of years by myself uh, and and raising a young family. When I was pregnant with my second child, in 2015, that's when I realized that I had gotten my billings to a level at a national firm that unless I wanted to keep working like Saturdays and Sundays, I needed to leverage some assistance. Oh, so I did hire a trainee uh, while I was pregnant with my second. And that wasn't necessarily to increase my billings. It was more to get some time back in my life. So yes. kind of, that's really what I valued at that point. I needed to be able to know that like if I had to be out of the office or you know, if I was working on something else, this task was getting done. And that's really where I learned, you know, started to really figure out how powerful it was to aggregate the information, create processes, work as a team, and really create some efficiencies uh, throughout that process, even without technology, just getting, uh, scaling an individual to understand what the process is and getting them up to speed allowed my billings to increase exponentially without even, you know, really trying. It was just easier to take on more work. And on top of that, I was billing more and still working less, which worked out well. And that's not to say that my training was working, you know, 80 hours a week. They they were able to to keep uh, a meaningful 45, 50 hour a week work week, which is pretty standard. That is, that is really encouraging to hear. And and one thing that I, I think you made reference to, and that is, I mean, you didn't talk much about it, but if you could, you, because you had experience doing research, you had experience in investment sales, you're now in valuation. You talked about the importance of of your billings, your book of business. For those that aren't familiar with that, what does that entail? Sure. So if you're at a national uh, fee shop, you're typically on commission. Oh, okay. So take a split of uh, each assignment, right? And we deal in three to $5,000 widgets, depending on the complexity of the assignment. Yes. Obviously, there can be, you know, the assignments with, you know, significant scope of work. You can it's a triple, double, quadruple that fee, right? But generally, uh, it's a volume business. And mm-hmm. if you focus on multifamily, you're likely dealing with, you know, the agencies. So Fannie and Freddie, uh, you're doing some of the community and, and regional uh, banks are, are lenders on the small balance or small, you know, multifamily work. Yes. You, you get to see a lot of different client types, right? And so you're able to really cast a pretty wide net on business development. And you want to make sure that when you've introduced yourself and your team to a client that you're always able to provide a meaningful turnaround time and fee for them. So what impacts uh, turnaround time and fee typically uh, is supply and demand, right? So yes. if if you're at capacity, fees tend to go up, turn times tend to spread out. And that's not what our clients like to see because they still, they compete on speed as well. So they need to get their uh, third party reporting done in a timely manner. And so as I was leveraging my team and the processes and ensuring that, you know, that the database that we did have available to us 
was up to date and, and could be leveraged uh, throughout our whole team and anybody else touching multifamily in the Midwest. It was uh, it just became clear uh, that in order to, you know, really increase productivity across mm-hmm. the the platform, because at, at this point, so I grew my team uh, from two of us to about six of us over a five year time period. Yes. And yes. Then I took on a national role as the multifamily specialty practice group. And during that time and being a producer myself, I was able to call around and, you know, talk to 60 different professionals who had been appraisers for, you know, anywhere from 10 to 25 years at this point and talk to them about what they're seeing in the market and also overlay that with the client surveys we had been doing. And generally, every producer I talked to indicated that there was some pretty significant burnout occurring because the number of transactions were increasing at a point where, and and it was actually a diminishing return because at that point, the commercial uh, general or certified general population was is is declining and yes. was declining at the time, right? So there was a stat that we use often over a four or five year period, uh, multifamily transaction volume alone increased by 74% and the number of appraisers decreased by 10% over that same time period. Ooh. And you really saw that in, you know, kind of coming out of COVID. So end of 2020 through beginning of last year, 2022, you really saw that supply and demand issue come to a head because you had, you know, appraisers turning, like allowing for, or having to quote turnaround times that would push from four to six weeks out. And sometimes that's the life of a, a overall transaction. That's right. So they can't be waiting for our profession to, to uh, catch up with the capital market. So that's where, you know, while I was at my uh, prior firm, we had started talking about how do we leverage technology beyond just a web-based database? How do we get the database to integrate more with our appraisal workflow? And it really, the, all signs led to, you need to build a web-based application. So Interesting. Uh, at that point, I think I had gotten my team as efficient as they possibly could be on the legacy templates, which at the national firms are you've got a property record database, right? And that's a web-based application that's a yes. single sign-on and people can go in, but it pretty much starts with a blank slate. There's not a lot of direct integration to those uh, at that time. And, and it's also incumbent on freezers and analysts to actually fill the database, right? Yes. But then the, the way the, te- the legacy templates work is the database then dumps into Excel and then there's a communication using macros between Excel and Word. So it's all very Microsoft-based. Once it gets into Excel and Word though, Michael, that is highly manipulable. That oh. Excel and Word is very manipulable. And that means that if you're under a national brand, you could have a completely different output at the end of the day in you know Chicago versus Dallas. And that's not what our clients of national firms want to see. They want to see consistency across the national platform. And so the other thing that occurs once data gets dumped into Excel and Word and then ends up in a flat PDF is you end up losing a lot of the information and all those valuable, uh, you know, physical inputs, uh, economic inputs, mm-hmm. assumptions uh, that appraisers come up with, the ultimate conclusion of value, all that valuable information sits in an Excel and Word and then a PDF and then just lives there forever and dies. So, Got it. Yes. Whereas if you're using a web-based application like the firm that I ended up joining uh, in January of 2020 uses, has built and, and uses, you can ensure that the the data that is leveraged in an appraisal report and starting with multifamily, which is what my current company does, you can ensure that every data point and assumption along the way is recorded and usable for the future. 
Got it. So it's not only input, but it's recorded and it's there for posterity as well so that it's not having to recreate the wheel every single time. That's right. And out of that, you end up with volume, right? And and you, the more volume you do, you end up with a critical mass of data points and you can start to do some proprietary trending and analytics on various comps or individual expense line items and, and really do some pretty interesting analytics, which is where we are. That's phenomenal. Now, for people that have never worked at a firm, maybe of the size you've been in, I, I did hear you say that you had grown your team from two to six. And I, I, did you mention that you ascended to a position of the National Multifamily Practice Group leader? That's right. Yeah, I did so that. What, what's that like, Megan? I mean, here you are, you've moved between two strong uh, markets in the United States, and now you're ascending to a different role, which is a practice leader. I mean, you were uh, as you mentioned, I think you mentioned about, you know, in your role in Chicago, but now you're accounting for, well, all kinds of places and things. It was a very rewarding position uh, because I used it. I, I, again, dipped into my research, uh, you know, skills and just called around, had a lot of conversations with what individual appraisers were seeing. And I, it became pretty clear that there was a, a constant theme either between the appraisers themselves and our, our client base. And the two main themes were the appraisers were clearly overworked. It was taking way too much time to keep up with the volume. Uh, they were missing a lot of vacations. There were some family dynamics that were broken down because of the number of hours folks yes. were having to work. And it just seemed like we were at a critical point of quality of life needed to be a consideration for these the appraisers. Uh, and I saw an opportunity where you know some additional training for the next generation of appraisers would help with that as well as digital innovation, ensuring that all the data is available, you know, in in one spot and uh, you kind of end up, uh, we call it now the democratization of data, right? So you can ensure that it is all that valuable comp information at national firms that sits in, you know, various PDFs, Excel, some in a property record database, right? Uh, and a lot of it just ends up being dislocated throughout a national network and it's yes. hard to really get a good, uh, analysis going if the information is not all in one spot. So over that time frame, it was clear that a web-based application would fix that. The other part that became clear was that the clients were really starting to notice that there was a dislocation of data because they were getting inconsistent reporting, inconsistent quality throughout the, the nation. And uh, a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, appraisers were trying to crank out a lot of reports quickly to keep up with demand. But one of the first things that falls if you don't have any kind of QA or QC in there or, or ability to put together a report in a more efficient manner, the first thing to go is quality. And so in order to combat that, you kind of you need to solution for how do you make the end to end valuation process more efficient. And we believe that the web based application has done that. Uh, it's also more intuitive of a tool to use. So we've that the younger generation is really able to get up to speed and become uh, pretty effective producers in a more condensed manner than they can at, at some of the other firms. That's amazing. Uh, and maybe one thing, because there's very few people in their career would have an opportunity to be promoted to a position of national practice leader. What type of activities, responsibilities does one have, did you have moving from you know being responsible in Chicago to a national practice leader? Does that mean that you're sitting in closed door meetings all the time, or you're flying around the country all the time, or are you signing reports all the time? What what type of things are you involved in moving from the run role to the other while you were still at the firm? 
Yeah, it was a lot of uh, communication around best practices. Uh, first, I, I found out, you know, who were the top producers, who was doing things effectively, how could I take that and scale it for the other teams and introduce them to give them a little bit of quality of life back. And then also just, you know, with multifamily, there are various lending sectors and, and different reasons that, that a multifamily client may want an appraisal, right? So part of it was just educating uh, some of the the staff that we had that were multifamily specialists throughout the nation that may not have ever worked on an agency assignment. So introducing them to what the Fannie and Freddie requirements are, uh, under you know, really introducing them to what is needed when you're doing uh, work for an owner-operator, a quarterly and annual review providing the templates uh, on the affordable side to really understand how to put together a LIHTC or a subsidized uh, valuation. Uh, no matter what market it's in, it's all yes. methodology is pretty much there. So the local market experts know their market. What they need is just the tools to to be able to understand you know, how different scopes of work uh, are different. And, and at a national firm, you're rarely starting from scratch. So it's really that that, that role was connecting the dots uh, and making the connections between the various professionals who had different skill sets. And you, you threw in uh, a word, I, I caught it, and I'm very familiar with what you were speaking to, but maybe for those that are not, you mentioned uh, Litech, Lightheat. What are those of uh, low-income uh, valuation assignments? Because there's a whole different component in there for those that are, are in appraisal, but maybe have never dealt with that uh, subset of specifically multifamily. Yeah, that acronym stands for Low Income Housing Tax Credit. It's an affordable program through federal government, and it's a way to build affordable housing throughout the nation or renovate affordable housing. And it's definitely a a good niche for somebody that's uh, interested in valuing those types of, of properties. It's a little bit more, right? It's extra. You have to understand the programs. You have to have Two sets of rent comps, two sets of sale comps, you know. So, but but it's great once you're an expert in that. I will tell you this: that the pool of folks uh, that focus on that or, or the competition is is lighter in that world. So, um, but it does take some time to understand it. You don't want to just kind of go in it blind uh, because you'll be exposed pretty quickly if you're not leveraging the, <laughs> the the expertise of someone within your firm. So. I, uh, there, there's no better way to find out that you haven't, uh, honored the client than to say yes to something that you didn't confirm what it was before you said yes. I, I remember back many years ago, to your point, someone who I had gotten to know quite well, owned a lot of buildings in Chicago. He's like, Hey, uh, we'd love to have you help out with some of these tax credit deals. I'm like, how? He goes, well, we need appraisals. And I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't think I know what he said. No, I think you could do it. I'm like, I don't know that I, I'm not saying I don't think I could do it. I'm just saying I don't have the data, haven't done this before. He's like, no, no, we'd love to have you do it. And I'm like, I appreciate your encouragement. Um, can you give me a couple days and let me look into it? And I called someone who I knew that uh, it was very familiar with it. They specialize in it. They're like, Michael, this is a great space to get into. If you want to specialize in it, it's going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's going to feel monotonous at first because there's so much more work that you do. But it's it's actually very rewarding. And you know, part of it's flow. I mean, you need to be doing these. You can't just do one off. He goes... You know, if you want to get in, do it. And if not, uh, this might be one of those times to say no. So I call back uh, my buddy. I'm like, man, I am so grateful that you asked. And uh, I think I should just see you socially from now. I just keep seeing you socially and, and not be helping out on the uh, low-income housing yeah. appraisal stuff. And he goes, well, I appreciate your honesty. I'm disappointed, but I respect your answer. And uh, we'll keep working with the firm that we're working with. I'm like, well, they're, they're specialists like that. I called somebody on that team. I didn't know that's who you were working with, but uh, 
I think you should stay with them. They're really good. So there's something to be said about that for that consistency that comes from specialization. That's right. It is uh, very important to, to know your limits or do the homework beforehand, right? And create that competency yes. before you deliver. So when you are at this role now of connecting the dots as a, as a national practice leader and uh, you know best practices across the firm, looking to increase consistency, trying to improve um, the quality of life and, and the results of your team, are, are you getting to do any appraisal at this point or have you uh, moved on from that? You're more just, just maybe reading them now and then as opposed to producing them with, with a team, trainees and CGs or how does that work along the way? That's right. Uh, so it took, you know, when we first launched the new venture, we launched it with seven of us total. So of course, it was all hands on deck during that startup time. We were the subject matter experts. We were interfacing with the product managers and the developers explaining, you know, what was needed to create a web-based application. Uh, the databasing part was, was one thing that was already, there was a good template for that across different industries. But what was different, you know, with us is we took the entire end-to-end -end process uh, and made it a web-based application. So it's the appraisal workflow. Awesome. It's the selection of comps. You only enter information once and it flows through into the report editor, which is also cloud-based. So there is no Excel or Word in our process anymore. It is 100% web-based application, which again, lends itself to that, you know, being able to record and warehouse the data and, and create some trending uh, analytics on it. But so when it was just a few of us and we were starting out, we, we started with seven and we grew towards the end of 20, 2022, we ended up around 90 professionals. Uh, so it was a very quick growth opened up nationally within 18 months. And uh, it was, you know, quite a wild ride because we launched and it was COVID, right? And uh, we, you know, made it through that. It allowed us to really continue to develop the technology because we needed that extra few month window to to really start to leverage the the technology we had built. So we put our first report through in August of 2020. And I'm proud to say that at no point in the last, like since then, uh, has there been any catastrophic fails? We've always been initial <laughs> report, in it, which is pretty great because it's, this technology is ours. No one else can claim they have this type sure. of uh, scale and, and ability to uh, process appraisal reports for ver lots of different clients throughout the national, throughout our national network in volume like we have. And so to answer your question, am I still appraising? I'm still consulting for sure. Oh, yes. So, you know, one of the things that we do often is put together quick snapshots of, of different asset classes throughout different markets and provide that upfront to our clients in terms of what the how cap rates have changed or how because of the data aggregation, we're able to run some pretty meaningful proprietary analytics and service our, our prize clients that way. And uh, it's been pretty neat. But I, but the day-to-day, -day I now lead, I'm the group head of our division. Yeah. So I'm no longer uh, focused on you know recruiting and, and developing in the Midwest specifically. I still do a lot of recruiting. I will read appraisals you know once in a while when my signature is, is required contractually from different clients. Uh, but I've really given up uh, more of the day-to-day -day and focus on really sticking to the mission and making sure that we're our strategy is in play and that communicating that across our entire platform training one of the things we've uh, really set our sights on aside from the technology and, and innovation we've been doing there it's been training so we we recognize that our 
valuation profession for a long time hasn't been all that attractive uh, for the younger generation to to into. It's been a lot of legacy, you know, family yeah. type type stuff. And even then, they're they're tending to leave the profession instead of uh, continue to grow their their family business. And and because of that, you know, we we see a real need for. I mean, obviously, the human element. Like we can automate as much as we possibly can, but at the end of the day, humans want to talk to other humans. You know, if someone's got to explain the subject property and how it fits into the the market and and really back up an opinion of value that does have an individual signature on it. So I don't really foresee a scenario where we ever get to like full automation without any humans. I think that humans will start to leverage AI to to make our lives easier and be able to take more vacations. So, <laughs> the, and, and so because of that, we really have focused on growing the next generation of appraisers because of the older population that we know we have. There's a lot of retirements yes. coming and so we've really made it a priority to train the next generation of appraisers with a real eye towards diversity and inclusion uh, there. So, Megan, could I could I interrupt just for a minute? Because you made an important transition that you and I are both aware of. I have the privilege of, of knowing you for a number of years, but maybe other people were not. So in your role, you were successfully guiding a national practice group, and then a change came about. That's something that, uh, you know, is part of our theme here in season two of the podcast, which are intentionally connecting with peers who have made changes or are impacting change in the industry for good. How is it for you from a professional standpoint? You were from the Midwest. You early on touched on your desire to be in the Chicagoland area for proximity to the, uh, uh, I would say, to extended family. Grandparents probably were a big factor in that, as well as um, now handling national practice group. And then you go and make a change. What uh, Were you looking for a change or did you know did somebody just come along and just kind of pluck you out of the out of the sky and like, hey, congratulations, here's a new home. How did that happen? Because that's something most people aren't aware of, the value of relationships. Yeah, I uh, was not looking for a change and I do very much value relationships and, and loyalty and uh, had no real reason to leave my company, That uh, the only company I'd ever, ever worked for at that point. I was going on 16 years and- Wow, uh, 16 years at one company? Yeah, Impressive. But different service lines, remember? So I was always yes, engaged in learning and, and that was important to me. And, and I had a lot of opportunities to transition and grow and always felt challenged. Uh, so there was a point in time where we started to leverage prop tech groups. Uh, one was Chicago-based. We were using them for rent roll and P&L parsing. Uh, so that's where hey. you can take a a you know, 500 unit rent roll, drop it onto an interface and it'll give you a meaningful unit mix uh, to analyze, right? Uh, in your reports and stuff. And the same thing for profit and loss statements, right? So the P&Ls, operating yes. statements that we're constantly dealing with, you end up with three years of history that you're trying to analyze. And that uh, sometimes ends up with 800 different expense categories, right? That you have to aggregate and, and uh, put together. So there are parsers out there. And we were leveraging while I was at my prior firm uh, one of the prop tech groups for uh, th- those types of, of parsing capabilities and as well as a rent algorithm that they had, which was aggregating a lot of the multifamily rent comps that we had been using. So through that group, they actually, get, they, they were acquired by my current firm. And so- Oh, yeah. really? So you're actually, here. you're in the marketplace, like so many of us do, using a technology solution and the solution that you're using actually gets acquired. That's right. And when they were acquired, uh, that is when my name that was put, it was around the same time that the, the group I'm with decided to start a valuation platform. And so when they oh. started the valuation platform, they were looking uh, for certified generals and MAI. And so 
uh, my name came up through that prop tech group in Chicago and I had uh, a recruiter call and it, it was, you know, an interesting partnership that had been put together. It was Walker and Dunlop and, and Geo5. Yes. And I knew of both, obviously, Walker and Dunlop was a client, uh, knew of the prop, prop tech group that they had acquired as well. So had, they had been making some really good fintech investments and, and they were on my radar. And then Geo5 as a global data science analytics tech company, that was pretty clear to me that they had put together a pretty powerful partnership. And it, it's, it was a much smaller firm than what I was at. And I could just see that they had all the ingredients to put together what I knew needed to be done in the valuation space. And not just for appraisal purposes, but really just for the the ease of, of integrating data with our clients, making quick valuation decisions, whether it's for appraisal purposes, acquisition purposes, like buyers and sellers, owner and operators, they, they need valuation understanding at every step of the way, right? And what yes. do you need for that? You need data. You need quick, clear data that has been normalized. And, and there's no better uh, place, in my opinion, uh, than an appraisal group to normalize it. So it's... Uh, Second that one, uh, two thumbs up there, yeah, Meg. So I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I found the proposition to be just one that because Walker and Dunlop was so well capitalized and GeoFi had such great data analytic capabilities and Walker and Dunlop was a significantly smaller firm in terms of headcount. And yeah. so I could tell that, that it was just going to, I thought that what they were putting together was going to get to the end result quicker. I really just made a calculated uh, decision to join the group uh, that I have here at Apprise now, and it's been paying off ever since. So it's been about congratulations. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I mean, the, the steps that you've taken along the way—they're all publicly documented, so none of this is 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 I would say proprietary information. But it's always wonderful to have that kind of inside view, where you know, along your career, you're seeing opportunities, you're seeing challenges. You know, going all the way back to the very beginning, you're referencing that. You know, the answer isn't necessarily yes, but it's not necessarily no, but let me have some time to explore that. And through the course of your career, I've understood that you're seeing both opportunities and challenges. And, and one of the firms that, that you all were having some improvement with in terms of process and the ability to analyze data was also one that, you know, you and I briefly talked about that I had looked at investing in and was introduced to really early on and was impressed with what they were doing. And because of your engagement there, and again, the quality of relationships, uh, you get an unexpected phone call. And now here you are working with a, a tech-enabled firm that's focused uh, right on multifamily and really harnessing a lot of um, innovative results for clients um, that had not yet been done at the scale that uh, a prize is doing. Wow. So what's it like sitting at that seat at the table compared to maybe being at a larger firm and you know, you have to deal with larger firm things. I heard you say it's a smaller firm and you're with technology and the and your parent company is an investor in technology to help improve the impact for clients. How's that dynamic? That's one that almost none of us get an opportunity for. But would love to hear what it's like from your viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a smaller firm by way of just pure, you know, number of people, right? It's both both are publicly traded companies, uh, but one has 50,000 uh, staff globally and the other one has like 1,400. <laughs> so it was much easier, much easier to make decisions, you know, have access to the, the decision makers, uh, 
understand yes. how you fit into the overall strategy of the the services firm that we were part of. And it was, uh, it's been, but it hasn't all been roses, right? The market has been throwing us, uh, you know, punches left and right in terms of, you yes. know, the, the, the past few years, whether it was the uncertainty of the few months of COVID or high transaction mm-hmm. volume market while we were, you know, building, we always say we were kind of you know, building the, the the airplane as we were flying it, right? Uh, we started a valuation platform from scratch, and that was no simple endeavor. Wow. Uh, it took every single person uh, over the course of the past three and a half years that is that have been a part of the team, and some have come and gone, but we keep going, and we're all very proud of, of what we've built, you know, to date. And we do leverage the most cutting-edge appraisal technology out there. There's a lot of our competitors that tend to say that they're tech-enabled, and it rubs me the wrong way because, really only one firm that can say they're tech enabled and I can define it six ways a yes. Sunday for you on what that means. So, How about two of the ways? What are the two main ways? Obviously, you got the web base, you have the integration, you have that ability with technology and proprietary data to pull things together. You've specialized in one asset. Um, you know, I also hear that you said you took the time to build it from scratch, so you weren't operating off of a legacy system. And I, I would assume your effectiveness is is higher, if not radically higher, than what you were accustomed to where you spent the majority of your career. That's right. So I think that the best point I have is uh, it's all it is speed, right? And and speed's just a byproduct of data aggregation and the efficiencies that come from that. Uh, and the other part about it is the web-based application is far more intuitive than the macros and the various cell references that come between a Microsoft Excel Word uh, integration. It is very yes. complicated once you get into uh, those, you know, uh, templates that are that are out there. And it's much harder, Michael, to get a junior appraiser up to speed in those templates than it is on our web-based application. So we are able to get a trainee up to speed and end to end in the valuation process far quicker uh, than we were at our legacy firms on the legacy templates. And the um, I would say uh, the biggest point of reference I have is is that at the top of the height of the market in the fourth quarter of 2021. I mean, you had appraisers bidding four to six weeks out, even for multifamily, because they just were at max capacity. Yes. And if you talk to an appraiser who's at max capacity, you should trust them. They can do a lot of volume. <laughs> They're paid on yes. a commission basis. So that's how busy everybody was. That said, though, on the multifamily side, which is a little bit quicker, you, you really doesn't take more than, you know, like a two week is two to three week is kind of a standard turn time. We can offer one week as needed. And uh, because because our, our system is that speedy. Uh, but the the real crux of it was in the fourth quarter of 2021, when our competitors for multifamily, primarily on the agency side, were averaging around three and a half week turns, a prize was at a two and a half week turn. So we were a full week faster and very wow. proud of that uh, that data point because it, it really showed the the 24 months of innovation we had put in um, and training our, our staff on it uh, had paid off for our clients. That's fantastic. I mean, you love to have that type of differentiation that is quantitative. I mean, qualitative is wonderful, but quantitative, there's nothing like the numbers. You're like, yeah, you need that in two and a half weeks? Uh, sure. Uh, you got to charge me more? Well, no, I don't necessarily need to. Maybe I will, but I don't necessarily need to. And they're like, oh, fantastic. You know, we can keep our deals moving quicker because 
there is that sense of a deal fatigue that happens when things wear on for a long period of time that many people on the transaction side never get to experience. That's right. And, you know, I've, I've recruited uh, a lot of our professionals throughout the nation, particularly our senior appraisers that are team leads, uh, have come from, you know, similar national uh, firm backgrounds as myself. Uh, and it's been awesome to see them come in, leverage the technology and acknowledge uh, how much more efficient they are and how much you know happier their teammates are in working in that compared to you know the Excel and, and Word templates that were available to them. It's not to say that we we can't solve everything on the web web application. You can't. I thought Megan, come on. I it's, thought you could. I mean, I mean, with Willie leading the helm there. I mean, come on. He he is. High energy, you know, big picture thinker. I figured between the two of you having like coffee once every couple of weeks, virtual, if nothing else, you guys have already solved the problems of the world. Well, it's one thing to have all the ideas out there. It's a whole nother to actually develop the product that's going to satisfy the needs, you know, to scale. Right. So that that's one thing that, you know, you asked what it's like to sit in my position. It's been, you know, highly rewarding to see a lot of this come to fruition, but it's also come with its own level of change management. Right. I mean, just I feel like I'm a psychologist at this point or should have a background in psychology to, uh, you know, kind of be able to meet people where they are and, and get them through the overall concept of the, you know, it's not that the way that they were doing things was wrong. It's just this is a neat, new, interesting way to do things. And here's a subset of people who are highest producers. And it's clear that they're, you know, satisfying clients in a timely manner and prefer to use the application. And so we leverage those success stories to really make sure that the rest of the groups kind of see that and and ultimately uh, adopt because adoption is probably the biggest, uh, you know, part of when you develop something new is it, it's, it's not a useful tool if only 30% of your, uh, you know, staff is using it, right? And, and you can't really understand what additional features or improvements need to be done again if 30% of your staff is using it. So we have a 80-90% use uh, on the application across the nation for multifamily. And so we can glean a lot of valuable feedback from all the reports we put through our application. That's fantastic. And, you know, Megan, one thing we always appreciate hearing about from peers like you who are creating the future, as you said, a bit of flying the plane uh, while you're building it, what excites you? You know, what are you looking forward to over the next, say, five years from the role that you now sit in? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the market picking back up. Uh <laughs> oh, no kid. Come on, Megan. Are you sure? You've got to be kidding. I I I don't know if there's another appraiser out there, another valuer that would ever say the same thing. Okay, okay. So we totally yeah, so- agree with that one. Yeah, we totally agree with that. It would be nice. I'm calling what we've been in for a good like four quarters now. Uh, it's been stagnation. I'm calling it purgatory because that's what we're in. We're in valuation purgatory at the moment. It's yeah, purgatory. there's no distress. You know, no, no, no meaningful distress at scale, and there's very little transactions, which means appraisers are you know twiddling their thumbs. Uh, so, uh, but we're, we're staying pretty busy, which uh, you know we're continuing to grow our market share because we can tell that we're, you know, we're increasing our quarterly revenue at a faster clip than oh, the yeah. overall transaction market is falling, right? So we are gaining market share, which is a which is good insights. But I would say in the next five years, what I would really like to see is one hundred percent multifamily going through the application that and then introducing commercial to it as well. Cause we've seen, especially on the net oh. lease side, uh just real efficiencies uh in leveraging that web-based application. So really continue to improve on the multifamily side, uh, 
expose or be able to service the commercial side through our application. Uh, and then eventually being able to not just make the PDF the deliverable for our clients. I think that there's a real opportunity to, you know, parse out portions of the the product and and certify it and and give it in a even more timely manner than we're able to give the full report, if that makes sense. So I think direct data integration with our clients, uh, more analytics uh, around all the data that's being uh, assembled by, you know, a national valuation firm like ours, um, and really becoming more of an advisory uh, and consulting to our, our clients as opposed to a requirement on the back end. I can definitely appreciate that, especially having spent a lot of time with owners and investors. You know, that ability, as you said, to really fill a seat at the table as opposed to being an yeah. ancillary role, you know, sitting in on those conversations, much like you did uh, back in the in, in, you know investment sales meetings, where that's an, you're an integral part in conversation with a client as opposed to just, oh, and send it over there afterwards. Absolutely fascinating. How do you see the role of a real estate valuer and appraiser uh, expanding, changing? I mean, I, I, I know for myself, one of the fascinating things I consider is I have a relative who is in a role that didn't exist several years ago, which is always amazing. He went to a top tier university, phenomenally talented individual, comes back to Chicago after being out east, and he is a bud tender. I'm like, what is that? He goes, oh, I help people cultivate premium cannabis. I'm like, legit? He's like, no, dude, it's, it's, I get paid well to do this. You know, fancy. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm like, you know, showing my ignorance uh, here. But uh, that, that leads me to think that there must be a whole host of opportunities in the future that are going to arise for valuation professionals, maybe directly in the lane of appraisal. But if you talked about technology, analytics, a lot of data use, what are you seeing as possible? Yeah, new industries are key, especially where it's legal, like Illinois, right? So that's a new industry that created opportunity for your friend. Uh, And, you know, another new industry that's coming up and out, it's always kind of been around, is this artificial intelligence, right? Like a chat GPT, everything you're hearing about open AI. So I would, I think there will always be, I go back to a lot of times when you start talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning, you know, people just get scared. And normally they get scared or defensive uh, because they think that the only option is for your job to be taken by a computer instead of enhanced by a computer. And that's how we need to start thinking about this is how do we leverage these tools to make our lives easier? Because, you know, the next generation, the younger millennials, Gen Z, they're not interested in a 60 hour work week like ever. Oh, wow. You mean, what are you not going to do with all that extra free time right. hanging out with yeah. this next generation? Well, my goodness. You have some, uh, you know, some hobbies back, Michael, as opposed to your podcast. You can have three more podcasts about simply besides appraisal. So, <laughs> oh, uh, goodness. So I, I think yeah. that, that, you know, what the future holds for appraisal, uh, you know, experts is, is really to start thinking of yourself as a value add in the process as opposed to a requirement. Uh, embrace the technology that's available to you embrace the technology that's available to you to get a little time back in your life because we all deserve that. I think that, you know, the way we think of our application is it's not an automation. It, it's a, kind of more of a co-pilot, right? Think of like what you fly. We use the plane analogy a lot. Uh, in terms of like when you yeah. board a commercial okay. airliner, like could it, can it fly itself? Yes. But do you want to get on without the humans in the cockpit? No. So it's a, uh, <laughs> it. it, you, you I think that there will always be a place for for appraisal professionals to be the 
the storyteller to be the person that explains and, and really takes ownership of the, the valuations, uh, you know, that are coming out from from their firm. I think the other opportunity uh, in this space is, is you know, to be a subject matter expert. That's going to be key. Yes. And what, what do you see as some of the SME possibilities for professionals? I mean, especially if they're considering, because it is, like you said, it's a bit of purgatory right now, but it's also a wonderful time to be in reinvesting in your skills, maybe even building out something uh, as a capability that didn't exist before. You know, what do you get to look at from your spot in the industry? I would say that is near the front of the plane versus most of us that are probably sitting in cattle. I meant coach towards the back of the plane. I think it's... Uh... Data analytics would be uh, an area that I think would be important. Uh, I think there's a lot of, you know, fintech and prop tech firms out there that say, hey, I've assembled this. Who would use it? How would you use it? Or I've built this neat tool that we think might work, you know, for this group. But then we thought, oh, of the appraisal groups, you know, I mean, even to the point where there's, yeah. you know, photo recognition and getting into the condition of the photos and the asset itself from the photos that are cleaned, right? So I just... I think that the opportunities are endless to be SME in our industry. I share that perspective and and have, like you, uh, allocated time, not a ton, but an allocated amount of time in any week and definitely every month to talk to people in that capacity. It's like, hey, what are you doing? What are you saying? I just consider it fascinating just to kind of get a sense of what's your view out of the window of the plane. If I'm sitting in the middle seat, I can't see. And I've heard a lot of the same things, but... Uh, but you're at the forefront and you're actually driving those changes. So it's so uh, valuable for not only myself, but hopefully everyone listening in to understand what might be available. Any suggestions you have in terms of how they might start to either gain awareness or even start to build some of their skills since you are involved in training up the new generation coming into the industry? So, yeah, I have the utmost respect for this industry. I think that risk mitigation, I think we play a really integral role in the capital market stack. I think that, you know, improving how we solve for value, create a credible opinion of value and support it uh, in an efficient manner is going to be helpful for our generation, the older generation and, you know, the younger uh, to come. I think that technology is what the younger millennials or all millennials and the Gen Zers are, are looking for in their chosen profession. So if you're investing in technology, it's going to be noticed in terms of your ability to retain talent, attract and retain talent. So I think it's been important to me to continue to improve the profession that I chose all those years ago. I've met a lot of great friends and mentored a lot of folks uh, throughout the industry and I'll continue to do that the you know from this position and you know beyond I think that the valuation industry is fantastic for new grandads it's like I said there's a real opportunity most commercial real estate service lines are heavily relationship based and heavily like family oriented right and it's a lot of legacy relationships and that kind of thing it doesn't have to be on the valuation side. We can really take somebody who's maybe first generation college grad and doesn't have any, you know, corporate hooks in yet in terms of family members and get them to yes. a really nice position in their career quickly through this democratization of data and, and training them in a, a more efficient way of, of valuing uh, properties. And the minute they have this background, even it's for three years in the valuation space, right? You now have a full understanding and all the connections that have come from being at a firm like ours 
where there's investment sales opportunities, capital markets opportunities, multifamily finance agency, and servicing, closing. There's all kinds of opportunity beyond the appraisal, you know, group. If you're at a prize, you know, by Walker and Dunlop, and I think that's a, it's just a great gateway for the younger generation to learn about our profession, understand commercial real estate, how we fit in, and then grow from there. I think there's a lot of great skill sets you can glean from from starting your career in the appraisal profession. And and even if you uh, go to a different service line, there's always a path back, right? And I'm proof of that. So that is true. Well, Megan, we are so grateful for your time today. It's amazing how fast these conversations go by. And covering so much in such a short amount of time, not as many people have an opportunity to spend their whole career at only two firms. And yet, nonetheless, as you said, get into the industry just because someone said, hey, you might want to take a look at this. And now you have an opportunity to lead the industry. And so excited for what the next decade will bring with your involvement and and your outlook. So we just want to say thank you so much for being our guest in this, uh, this segment of the Parusings, the Power of Values podcast. Of course, I appreciate you having me. And if any of your listeners want to learn more about what we're doing at a prize or my career, feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. You'll have all that information there in the show notes. We're so grateful. And again, just want to say thank you to everyone who uh, continues to provide fantastic encouragement, feedback, appreciation, and gratitude for, for these conversations. Um, also appreciate some of the suggestions coming in for what we might do in future seasons. But uh, this season, just such a wonderful array of peers involved in valuation and bringing technology in as a way to enhance the value that they're delivering for clients, which increases um, our place in the market, not decreasing it. So, so grateful for Megan. So grateful for this uh, conversation. And until our next podcast coming very soon, well, I just invite you to continue to share this out to your peers. Like Megan said, uh, it comes back to that adoption rate. So I don't know that we're at 80 to 90%, but we're grateful each and every week that more and more people are hearing about this and getting to, to receive some of this news, some of this insight, some of this perspective for themselves, for their profession, or maybe even for peers. So with that, we'll bring this to a close. And we say again, thank you so much and have a great day. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pa Ru Zings, Appraisers on Purpose. We hope you enjoyed learning from the amazing life paths and achievements of our guests. Don't forget to like us on LinkedIn and other podcast channels to hear more from appraisers and valuers regarding their life and their work. If you have any suggestions or questions for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us a message on LinkedIn and we'll be sure to get back to you. Thanks again for listening, and until we're together again for the next session of Paru Zings, Appraisers on Purpose, create the change that you seek. 